Judy was boring. Hello. Then Judy discovered Jumbacasino.com. It's my little escape. Now Judy's the life of the party. Oh, baby, mama's bringing home the bacon. Whoa, take it easy, Judy. The Chumba life is for everybody. So go to ChumbaCasino.com and play over 100 casino-style games. Join today and play for free for your chance to redeem some serious prizes. ChumbaCasino.com. No purchase necessary. Voidware prohibited by law. 18 plus terms and conditions apply. See website for details. I've appreciated every attempt from some of my friends that seemed a little fumbling, that seemed a little according to script, that was just, hey, now let's go get a beer. Yeah. Um, I appreciated the thought, but at the same time, I've been struck by the number of of my male friends that have just reached out and hugged me and said, I love you, man. Mm-hmm. And just was there. Um, it's just, it's been a remarkable experience. And like I said, I think it's just kind of refocused me on wanting to again, live out loud and just share my story and share what that has meant and share that um, there's another way to go about this. Welcome to The X-Files, Stories of Life After God. This special feature of the Life After God podcast explores stories of diverse people who have left the faith and religion they grew up with. In each episode, individuals will share in their own words how and why their worldview changed, the gains and losses associated with their religious and spiritual transition, the lessons they've learned in the process, and what their life is like now. To learn more about The X-Files and the Life After God podcast, please visit our website at lifeaftergod.org. Special thanks to Ian Gordon for the use of the theme music, The Truth Is Out There. If you would like to consider sharing your story in a future episode of The X-Files, please send a short email to ryan at lifeaftergod.org. Today on The X-Files, I speak with Tim Hellman. Tim is a former Christian who grew up fundamentalist in Bible Methodist and Pilgrim Holiness congregations. He tells me that he's not very comfortable with labels, but most closely identifies with agnostic. He has a bachelor's degree in sociology and anthropology from Truman State University, and most importantly, Tim is the father of two sons. Tim is an honest, open-hearted, compassionate person whose commitment to authenticity keeps him learning and growing. I am endlessly inspired by his generosity of spirit and his fearless, wholehearted approach to life. In this conversation, in addition to talking about his journey through Christian fundamentalism to where he is today— We talk about questions of healthy masculinity and where we might contribute to healing in our communities. Tim lives in Oregon, but I had the privilege of recording this conversation with him in person in Pasadena on a recent visit. If you want to learn more about Tim and read his writings, please follow him on Facebook at facebook.com slash subversive lens. Tim Hellman, welcome to the Life After God podcast. Thank you. It's good to be here. Yeah, and literally here. Literally here in Pasadena. Wow. (laughs) You you came down from Oregon just for this. Yes. Yep. Have you been to Pasadena before? I have not. And how's it treating you? It is treating me very well. Awesome. Yep. Got some great restaurant recommendations from you and yeah, it's been good. Awesome. Well, thank you for coming all this way and for, yeah, I know it's not just for this. You're also taking a little R&R, just kind of getting away and taking a little personal time. So that's awesome. And uh, I'm really excited to talk to you. So why don't you start by just... Um, Reflecting a little bit on like how we how we how do we know each other? I guess start there. Well, I met you the first time in Boise, Idaho. Probably has it been three, four years ago? Yeah, um, yeah. We spent some time at a cabin on I think Lake McCall. If that is, uh, yeah, something like that in McCall. At in least. McCall, yeah. Uh, I think me, you, and Brian Peck hung out for yeah for the weekend. Yep, yeah. and you brought some amazing. Oregonian beer. I did. I remember that now. <laughs> <laughs> um, so, and we know each other through Brian um, because of our sort of shared experience of um, being raised in um, one one might say fundamentalist, conservative at least, yes. evangelical Christianity, and then finding our way out. So, as I do with so many guests on the show, I wanted to ask you about your early memories of, um, before we get into what made you want to leave Christianity, mm-hmm. um, if you could think back to like the earliest memory you have of 
religion or church or Jesus or spirituality? Like what's, how does it feel? Like what was that experience like for you? And how, how does it feel to you now thinking back on it? Oddly enough, when you ask that, I think back to altar calls. Hmm. Uh, so I think one of my, I think recurrent memories is just, um, that feeling of always needing to get right with God, you know, every revival, every, mm. every, uh, every time there was an altar call, just going down, you know, needing to pray through. And, um, so I'd say that's one of my, I didn't think that would be one of my earlier memories when you asked, but that's kind of what came up. Um, and does that feel, um, does it feel kind of heavy? Cause it sounds a little heavy. It does. And I think as we get into it, one of the things that, um, as I'm rushing forward a little bit, I think started my transition out and started my deconversion process was having kids. Okay. Um, and, uh, kind of going through that process of remembering what I was taught at the age that they're at now and Mm. just trying to process that and process the impact that it had. Like fear of dying, fear fear of of dying. Um, still remember vividly having, um, calling my grandma and her not answering and wondering if the rapture had taken place. Oh, wow. So just a lot of that type of fear. Um, it was kind of inculcated and still feeling it at times, just, uh, or just more than remembering it. Yeah. Did you, do you have, um, were there also, was it mixed with like some good memories of like fun times had? Yes. I mean, I think some of my all time best memories of childhood was being at camps, mm-hmm. at youth camps and, getting to play basketball and getting to go to the snack shop. And again, it was mixed in with altar calls, but um, right. it was, uh, I definitely had a lot of great experiences. And then, um, and there's something to be said for the community that I had, you know, throughout that time. Sure. Um, but yeah, no, there was some, some great memories too. Yeah. It's interesting as you talk about those good memories, um, it, you know, they're the kinds of good memories that one would hope any young kid would have absolutely. with that with or without Jesus, you know, yeah, it's absolutely. like playing basketball, <laughs> camping, yeah. you know, s- snack shops, you know, like that's the kind of thing that hopefully should be a part of um, every kid's life. Um, and that those are the things that stand out to you. Not so much the, the experience of singing praise songs or praying or reading the Bible yeah. or, or something like that. Yeah. Those are the kind of like more like fearful, moments. What tradition did you grow up in? I grew up in, the church I attended was Bible Methodist, but I was very connected to like Wesleyan holiness, Pilgrim holiness, uh, just a lot of more um, Mm -hmm. holiness, like a holiness background. Yeah. And that comes out of, if I'm remembering correctly, the the revivals, like Charles Finney revivals, Mm -hmm. where it was an Adventism, which is my background. uh, Seventh-day Adventism comes from that same holiness thread, at least that we share a common root somewhere back there. Um, because I'm sure like you, we weren't allowed to go to movie theaters or play cards or the girls couldn't wear jewelry. Did you guys have all that? We did. Yes. It was, um, there was no dancing, right? No TVs, no TV growing up. None at all. None at all. Um, wow. So that's still, even more strict. Yes, it was, it was quite strict. Um, in certain, in certain areas, playing cards were off limits. Um, um, I'd, if I went swimming, it was in pants and a shirt. Um, really? Yes. Even the boys? Even the boys, yeah. At least it was like gender equity in some sense, It was. Right? We could never do it at the same time, but... Okay. Yeah, so if we were at a camp that had swimming, it was always, you know, we had our guys' time and then the girls' time. Even if so. you were in pants and a full shirt even, and everything? Even then. Yes. Okay, wow. Yeah, usually my experience with fundamentalist religion is that the girls are held to this very high standard of modesty, so mm-hmm. to say, and the boys can do whatever they want. You know, they're yeah. like practically in their underwear jumping yeah. in the swimming pool. No, we kept that. We kept that equal. Okay. Yeah. <laughs> equal uh, opportunity abuse. Yes. Right. Excellent. Wonderful. So, so did you go, did you end up going to like parochial schools as well? Yeah. I went to a small Christian school from kindergarten through 10th grade. Oh wow! Same school. Same. Well, it was the same founder. Um, there was there was two different schools. Mm. Um, in that school shut down, I think when I was in sixth grade, and then um, the person that had founded that school had started another one, and I mm-hmm. went there through tenth grade. And this is all Oregon. This was back in Michigan. Oh, Michigan. I grew up in Michigan. Okay. Yeah, I've been in Oregon for four years. Oh, okay. I just have you as this lifelong Oregonian. No, no. You fit. <laughs> you fit right in, though. That Pacific Northwest. <laughs> Thank you. You belong there. Yes. Yeah. So then, um, where did you begin to sort of, I guess, start to think for yourself or like, what's that first moment where you were like, wait a second, this, this is, I don't have to be part of this or, Mm -hmm. or, or maybe there's another way to live my life. Yeah. One of the catalysts, as I was thinking back and actually this week about it, 
was at church. I was probably, I don't even remember my age. Um, they had played a basically a movie of um, Abraham and being asked to sacrifice Isaac. Oh, wow. And it was very well done. <laughs> and I still remember walking out of church that day, I think, the, for the first time, just in a cold sweat and just feeling like, something was wrong and just something that I couldn't make sense of something that I couldn't find in a theology book that just how old something I was an adult. I do remember that it was not, um, I would say I was probably 25, 26. Um, I mean a lot of my, a lot of my journey out, my deconversion has been, you know, a little more pronounced I'd say in the last three, four years, but, um, you know, I'd say 10 to 15 years ago, that was Mm. still vividly remember walking out of church, just, feeling like something wasn't right and that I couldn't make sense of it. Yeah. Congratulations on having a conscience. Yes. <laughs> I mean, cause that truly is one of the most horrifying, uh, stories in the mm-hmm. Bible along with the flood, I suppose, but the flood somehow the mass genocide seems less impactful because it's not so personal, mm-hmm. but this one is so personal, you know, mm-hmm. Abraham kills his only son or is about to at least, I mean, all, and in fact, the point of the story is that he all but did, right? Mm-hmm. Like he essentially killed his son. And therefore was deemed worthy. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, Kierkegaard famously trips over this story as well mm-hmm. and becomes a big part of his own sort of justification of what faith means. Mm-hmm. It's a fascinating sort of window into his thinking and trying to rationalize this really horrific story. Mm-hmm. Um, so it makes sense that you would find that as a, a point of departure. Mm-hmm. And then where did it go from there? Um, I referenced it a few minutes ago. I think it progressed as my children got older. Mm. Um, I think as I look back at it now, I don't think my faith could have ever escaped my kids getting like growing up. Um, I think just as I said, um, thinking back and knowing what I was being taught at the ages they were. Mm. And, um, I mean, it was the oxygen I breathed then. It made perfect sense. I mean, these are the stories I grew up with. I never really... I was never able to back away from them and get a new vantage point on them and having children. Um, and I think especially the, the message of innate brokenness, mm. um, that I just could never, it was just unconscionable that I could communicate that to my kids. Mm. Um, and I understand they try to find age appropriate ways and they, um, but yeah. I just couldn't, I couldn't do it. I still can't do it. Right. Yeah. There is something about, um, you know, they sometimes say, or I've sometimes said to myself or heard said, you know, to try to treat yourself. If you're a person that's hard on yourself to like treat yourself the way the person who loves you the most would treat you. Mm-hmm. And I think that's a really helpful sort of guideline and, or like an orientation point. Um, but I still would find it, and as as you obviously do, much easier to condemn myself to hell. Oh, absolutely! Than to try to condemn my kids to hell. I mean, mm-hmm. what the hell mm-hmm. yeah. <laughs> is that about? That's yeah. crazy. So, so yeah. So you you get to this point where your kids are of the age where they're learning about their faith, and the core tenet of that faith is that you are lost and damned without Jesus, mm-hmm. and you need to somehow communicate to them that they are worthless. Mm-hmm. And you just can't do it. Can't do it. So then what did you do? Um, well, I found life after God. <laughs> <laughs> Thank you. That's yeah, great. Yeah. Wow. Oh, man, it um, means so much to me that that could actually be... Sometimes you talk into these microphones and wonder if anybody's out there, but mm-hmm. yeah. No, it had, it had a huge impact. I mean, not only on my deconversion process, but I think just even my life trajectory. Um, I mean, between that and then just a lot of, a lot of discussions with Brian, uh, yeah. um, were very, very instrumental. Um, I think in just seeing someone that it was as kind and heartfelt and moral as he was, um, that had also wrestled with these questions and seeing where he had went, I think it just gave me some level of freedom to start exploring these questions and um, considering what it would look like. Yeah. Um, Super similar tradition that he came from as well. Holiness. Very similar. Yeah. We know a lot of the same evangelists and sat under a lot of the same preaching. Oh my goodness. Yeah. So as, and as a consequence, some of the same recovery. Yes. So did you then, um, 
at some point like stop going to church or stop taking your kids to church or did you just kind of keep plowing through in spite of these feelings of discomfort both um i think for quite a while i plowed through the feelings um i think just again having grown up enmeshed in that culture the feeling that i needed to give them a strong moral foundation um so we did keep going for a while and then there were times i felt like it just kind of fell off Um, Mm. one of the things that ended up being somewhat of a kind of a segue out was we started going to a universalist church in bend uh, oh wow which was which gave us a lot of that community which gave us a lot of that foundation um but again, without without the fundamentalism and without the um, rigid structure. Yeah. So you were able to find a more open space to practice what was remaining of your faith. Yes. There was a better reflection of where I felt like I was. And were you doing along the way any sort of deep dive into theology and researching like alternatives or was it all pretty much happening at a gut level? It started at a gut level. Um, Interestingly enough, as you brought that up, I think there was, and I think it's still pretty prevalent in the church, there was always this feeling that if I just read enough William Lane Craig, if I just (laughs) read enough Ravi Zacharias, that I would get it. And it hit a point for me that there was no theology that was going to counteract what I felt who where I felt who I was authentically. Right. And it wasn't going to be able to make sense of, again, my experience in the church watching Abraham's sacrifice. Um, so so there was definitely that, but I think your question was more to um, did I start to find some alternatives? Or, or or just start to be like, now, wait a second. Is this just the feeling I'm having that I can't communicate this total depravity to my children? or Or is there a way, and I just haven't found it yet, I need to do more study, more Bible study, more praying? I definitely felt like that at first, and I think that's—I think one of the things that made it feel so final to me was just realizing that that was never going to be enough, Mm -hmm. that I shouldn't have to find a theologian that spent their entire lives working through this to make it make possibly minimal sense— to right. some people, um, it didn't work for me, and it so, was never going to be part of my authentic experience. Right. So it sounds like you had an intuitive, so you might not have said it this way at the time, but you had an intuitive sense that your morality was more evolved than that of the faith you were raised in. That is definitely what it felt like. I mean, I always feel some reticence to say that. Right. It sounds arrogant to say. It does. Um, but yeah, no, just indefinitely realizing that my moral compass wasn't being impacted by walking away from this, that I was still just as authentically right. me, that my morality was still there, um, that my passion to lessen the suffering of others was there. It was just without the fear, without... Yeah. And that was totally my experience as well. And part of the impetus for a year without God um, that year long thing I did where I was looking at atheism was like, if I, if I step away from God and I stop praying and I stop going to church, I should become a less good person, Mm -hmm. you know, according to my faith. Just live with hedonistic abandon. Right. Exactly. (laughs) Tempting, tempting. (laughs) Um, And I mean, I think that I might have lived in a way that others in my faith would have said was hedonistic abandon. Mm -hmm. Um, But it certainly wasn't like immorality in the sense of like, um, hurting people Certainly. or, you know, I don't know, breaking basic laws, you know, of nature, mm-hmm. like like taking what doesn't belong to me or, or harming someone or whatever. So, um, I just find, I, the reason I ask all that is that I just find it interesting that, um, people hold their faith both in their head and in their heart, mm-hmm. you know, absolutely in our emotions and in our intellect. And I think a lot of times, post-Christians, post-theists focus a lot on the intellectual part. Mm -hmm. And if they can explain to their loved one or their friend or their debate partner or whatever, rationally, how this doesn't make any sense, Mm -hmm. that that will win the person over. And it very often does not win them over to Mm -hmm. this new point of view. And, And at the same time, like you didn't leave ultimately your faith because you did this, you know, master's degree in theology and at the conclusion of it said, well, I've determined that, you know, this is all, you know, bullshit. It's, it's that you had this, um, instinctual, moral, visceral. Yes. Response. (laughs) Yes, absolutely. And so you, you were, as you were saying, going to a universalist church in Bend. Um, do you, do you still do that? We do occasionally. Uh Um, but oddly enough, I still have that 
early Sunday morning feeling when I wake up of, oh, I should be at church. Okay. A little bit of pushback. I'm like, no, I'm not going to this morning. Yeah. Yeah. And you <laughs> have to go on a hike. <laughs> right. And you're an adult. You can yeah. choose. Isn't that amazing? Yes. Yeah. You can be, you yeah. can make your own decisions. Yeah, I'm going to have a black boot porter. <laughs> there you go. Right. Before noon. <laughs> oh, that's great. Do you miss anything besides the community aspect when you're not there? Do you feel like there's a sense of like moral guardrails that even though you recognize intellectually that that's not true, like that you kind of wish it were true or something like that? I don't know if I'm putting that. In a- no, I, th- I think I understand what you're saying. I, I definitely miss aspects of the community, um, but I really do think that's about the extent of it. Yeah. I mean, I have, it was my childhood, right. so I have a lot of nostalgia. Mm. Um, I have a lot of, um, at times my childhood was somewhat chaotic and tumultuous. And so there was a lot of, um, a lot of people in my church that were rocks for me. And so I miss, I shouldn't say I miss it, but I mean, as I look back at it, I definitely have a lot of stable memories there. So I think there's some nostalgia, but as far as, um, missing it, I really don't. Yeah. Um, I think it came, came with enough shame and fear and baggage that it's, I'm just, I think I'm just relieved to have walked away. Yeah. And on the note of baggage, do you feel like there's still um, baggage that you have to somehow unravel in your life? Hourly, daily, yes. <laughs> Can you say a little bit about what those are? I think just the thing I've been thinking about a lot lately is just the desire to tell my story. And I think as I think about that, there's it brings up a lot of shame, a lot of shame baggage. And I think the specific context I'm thinking about then is that we all tell a story. We all have our carefully curated Facebook image. Right. Um, but for me to tell my story, I first have to inhabit my story. And I think it's that willingness to fearfully inhabit my story and then be able to tell it um, that I'm passionate about. But at the same time, I still bump into as mm. I think about different people that are going to listen to this podcast and what they're going to think. And, mm. um, but just again, having that strong desire to just live authentically, to live out loud, um, a for myself and then B for other people that are at another step in this journey that, you know, maybe I'll put some thoughts to words that, you know, they haven't been able to, or it'll embolden them to start yeah. asking questions. Um, so I'd say definitely a lot of things just kind of surrounding shame. Uh huh. Yeah, I know you and I have talked a time or two, and I've seen some things you've written, um, and I know you were telling me in advance of this that you you feel much more comfortable with the written word than the yes. speaking <laughs> into these microphones. Um, and and you're I think you're good at both, but I, I have observed your eloquence on on Facebook and other places that you've uh, Instagram and so forth, where you write little soliloquies, mm-hmm. if I may. Um, some of those things that that I've I've read from you have to do with. Your identity as a man, as a father, as a citizen, mm-hmm. um, you know, when you think about who you are as a person, all those identities that you carry, um, what, what's the work that you feel like you're doing to become who you're going to be? I think in some ways, just letting go. Some of this is cultural. Some of this is religious, you know, so I do want to make that distinction. Sure. Um, I think there's a lot of. Um, messages we get from the culture that aren't intrinsically religious ones. But again, growing up in a culture where, um, religious culture specifically, where the man was the head of the home, um, and then also just getting those cultural messages of men being impervious to their feelings and um, just getting a lot of um, a lot of toxic messages about what masculinity entailed. Um, it's definitely been a passion of mine. Again, it goes back to my kids. You mm. know, as I'm watching them grow up in this culture, um, it's really important to me that um, they don't grow up with those messages. And mm-hmm. There's only so much I can do. Right. Um, but I know in their immediate context, I can be a voice. Um, How old are they to, now? They are 10 and 7. Two boys, right? Two boys. 10 and 7. Those are yes. such fun years. Yes, they are. Oh, my gosh. Yeah. Yeah, and I, I love your parenting stories as well about I think the other day there was this hilarious one about like trying to get them dressed and there was like one shoe that didn't match another one and a a sock it was yeah yeah that's a daily story <laughs> <laughs> yeah and you've been a um being an active day-to-day dad has been a big part of your 
your last 10 years. Absolutely. Yeah, I was a stay-at-home parent for 10 years. Currently, after 15 years of marriage, going through a divorce process and starting to consider what direction I'm going to head. But yeah, definitely... Mm-hmm definitely a lot of you spent a lot of time with them a lot of time that's amazing yeah (laughs) they may say too much (laughs) (laughs) and you you know you talked a second ago about um you know cultural um messages that we um like really scripts in a way that we're given um unavoidably so right like if it wasn't this script it'd be another one Mm -hmm. you know we're just sort of narrative people Mm -hmm. and we absorb from our surroundings um the Stories that were told, whether overt stories or just subtle uh, covert stories. And, and part of that, as you mentioned, is, um, you know, what being a man is about mm. and feelings, whether, how we deal with our feelings. And you're, as I've gotten to know you over the last many years, I know that you're a very um, sensitive person and very emotionally connected person, which I'm not sure, you know, our culture teaches us that that's a good thing for mm-hmm. a man to have. Mm-hmm. but. Um, I'm, I have a similar makeup and I feel like it's something that your boys are getting from you in, you know, again, overt and covert ways, you know, that w- will make them the, the men that they're going to be. Absolutely. And it's definitely, it's something I've thought about a lot over the last 10 years since I've become a father. But I think especially as I've went through this divorce and um, just watched the way my male friends have reached out to me, um, it's been striking. Um, I know even um, just a few, well, it was probably two months ago when we were up near Boise right. uh, for that weekend, um, just the willingness for all of you guys to just sit with me, let me express what I had to express without trying to fix it, without trying to push my feelings aside. Mm. Um, it's been remarkable. And I think it's just kind of reinvigorated my focus on um, wanting to do what I can to change that culture surrounding what it means to be a man. Right. Um, what does it mean when you're sitting with a friend who's grieving? Um, and I've, I've appreciated every attempt from some of my friends that seemed a little fumbling, that seemed a little <laughs> according to script that was just, Hey, now let's go get a beer. Yeah. Um, I appreciated the thought, but at the same time, I've been struck by the number of, of my male friends that have just reached out and hugged me and said, I love you, man. Mm-hmm. And just was there. Um, it's just, it's been a remarkable experience. And like I said, I think it's just kind of refocused me on wanting to, again, live out loud and just share my story and share what that has meant and share that, um, there's another way to go about this. Yeah. Um, I think one of the things that's, this struck me as I, as I've thought through this is I think sometimes our first response and you talked about it kind of almost being, um, a script that we follow. Um, it does feel like it's become a performance. It becomes, I think the first question becomes, what are my allowable responses as a man? Yeah. It's grief. Um, and I think that disconnects us from our humanity. And I think if our first question is, what is this, you know, what can I do right now in this moment that can humanize this person or like, what is the human response? Um, again, I think there may be variance between how I respond versus others, but, um, I think, again, I think there's a danger in first identifying with our masculinity and thinking, well, how can I move forward in that scripted box? Um, yeah. Like what would happen if I just let myself be who I am today? Right. And I remember this experience, too, um, as I was going through my departure from religion and my divorce, that um, what I found was that when I did a little bit of that, some friends really let me down and others were really there for me. Mm-hmm. And and I, of course, immediately, given my scripting and my background and being a firstborn and, you know, being a pastor for 20 years, my 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 immediate response to that was I need to manage all of these relationships and make them feel okay and make sure that they know that that's fine. Like they don't need to be anything for me. And, you know, at some point part of my, um, growth, I would say through this process was just letting people be who they are and being okay with them being somewhat disappointing absolutely. in the same way that I'm sure I'm somewhat disappointing to others, you know, and just really, and I think part of Christianity too, is that we all have to be this perfect, like, you know, be all things to all people as we heard. And, and 
and to be able to say to myself, you know, I can't be all things to all people, and I'm, you know, I'm going to have to be who I am to as many people as possible, <laughs> and let and let the rest of it go, mm-hmm. you know. And I think also on the receiving end, I wonder if you feel like you've been able to see those fumbling responses from some people and just say, oh, they're doing the best they can, or whether some of that's really painful. I think for the most part, I've been able to. I think I've definitely struggled when I felt like the response didn't reach any farther than prayer mm. or um, – because I've definitely received um, a lot of very targeted scripture verses Oh yeah, um, about marriage um, just in that specific context. Um, again, from people that I I try to hold on to the two feeling like they're well-intentioned. Right. Um, but again, it brings up a lot of that just religious baggage and then I'm still left with feeling – to what end? I right. Mean, there's no, there's no sacrifice. There's no willingness to sit with me in my pain. It's um, there's a scripted answer that right. costs them nothing. They can just yeah deliver. Yeah, I think for me growing up, you know, part of the the um, what it meant to be a man. I mean, nobody ever sat me down and said, Ryan, here's what it means to be a man. I know a lot of young men get that mm-hmm. lecture or that speech from their you know, dads, uncles, grandparents, whatever. <clears throat> but I think for me, it was the sense that I could always solve whatever problem I had and that I didn't need a lot of help from anybody else. And that if I did, that was weakness. And again, nobody told me any of that. Mm-hmm. Um, but, you know, I, I grew up, my father uh, was born in 1944. So he's sort of a kind of an older boomer, almost a builder, right? Mm-hmm. And kind of World War II, mm-hmm. gen- post-war generation. And it was pretty, like, um, emotions were pretty hard to find around his family. And I, you know, knew both of his parents re- quite well before they passed away and actually did my grandma's funeral. And um, they were, you know, hardened, like, weather-worn you know, farmers from Northern Iowa, you know, like with that cold blast of air that comes down from, from the Arctic circle and just, you know, like they, they were, they were tough, tough people and, um, not a lot of room for, for feelings and, Mm -hmm. and, uh, yeah, I feel like I've had to sort of make my own way a little bit and, Mm -hmm. and been, I think happy with, you know, that responsibility for the most part, but also now looking at the wider culture, realizing that there is this culture of lost men. And Mm -hmm. wonder if you feel like what, if anything can be done about this on a, on a larger scale, like what, what can we be doing that would help men feel more less desperate maybe, or less alone less prone to strike out in really harmful ways. Mm -hmm. I have no answer. I think, I think what I'm trying to do at a smaller scale, um, again, is to live out loud is to Mm. be free with what I write, with what I express. Um, one of the things I had done on a slightly larger scale is I had started a, um, men's group through just at my house once a month. I just contacted every single one of my male friends and said, let's hang out once a month. That's amazing. Show up for beer, talk about life and marriage and kids and our fears and vulnerabilities. Um, and it was we had some really powerful sessions um, uh-huh. that were really meaningful. And I would maybe I'm just taking something micro and saying that this is my macro answer, but no. I would love to create a template, you know, where that could be, you know, pushed out, you know, to the larger culture where we could have, um, again, just that template there for yeah. starting where even if it was just again two guys, three guys, five of us, uh, just to be able to sit down and be real with each other. Um, and it was remarkable, even it's kind of fallen off lately with just kind of going through this divorce and life sure. hitting me in the face. Yep. But we had some we had some pretty profound experiences, I think, just being able to sit around and um let go of those cultural scripts. Yeah. And just be um almost practice with each other mm-hmm. what that would like it's scary and you throw it out there and then you're like, Okay, 
what's going to happen. Yeah. I'm going to get called a, a sissy or worse. Yeah. And then it doesn't happen maybe. And then yeah. you're like, oh. Yeah. And we always had about a half an hour to hour ahead of time to, you know, have a beer and a little snack time because I knew it wasn't going to start right away. A little bro time. A little yeah. bro time. But, uh, <laughs> but no, it really was. And, um, and I know this doesn't exactly answer your question, but I think that's one thread for me mm-hmm. is that I would love to see something like that um, become become more available to the larger culture, just that yeah. willingness to, you know, if it's once a month. Yeah. I mean, I don't, I'm not a person who believes in silver bullets. I mean, I don't think there's like some spray that we can drop over major cities and suddenly men become, you know, more grounded, yeah. emotionally yeah. <laughs> grounded or whatever. But no, I think it's exactly the thing I was, I was thinking about. And, and if you could, think about those moments. I'm not saying right now, but in your, you know, in your thinking about this in the future, like think about those, those moments that you had with those guys and, and think about like, what was the secret sauce? Like what would, I mean, obviously it's very specific to the personalities that Mm -hmm. are there and it's very difficult to recreate that exactly. But what would someone in another city, another man in his city need to do to like make that happen? And it might be quite, simple really Mm -hmm. like invite some guys over have some beers and be i don't know i think for me one of the first steps might be you go first yeah and i think that's exactly it i know and i'll tie it back into parenting as i've as my kids have gotten older and as we definitely ran into some areas where i just felt lost i remember still looking for answers and sometimes not even finding the answer, but just finding someone else that was going through it. Mm. And that's all I needed. Yeah. I didn't need anything more. I was able to walk away, again, without an answer, but just this feeling that I'm not alone in this. And I think similar to what you just said, I think um, inevitably at one of these meetings, um, there was always somebody that talked, that, of course, talked first, but was able to open up. And I think it really did just kind of open up the entire atmosphere to just, here's this other person being vulnerable. They're sharing, they're crying. Yeah. Um, I can share. Um, so I think there is something to that. And again, that's where I, I think I just come back to all I know to do right now is to be that person. Yeah. Is to open up the conversation is to express a willingness to show emotion, to be vulnerable, to say I don't have it figured out, I'm scared. I don't know where this is going to go, but that's okay. Yeah, that's where we all are. We yeah, may not, may not be what we're pretending is the case, but it's where I'm at. Mm. No, I mean I think that's perfect. Um, I mean it's all any of us can do, and and I think we don't. Even though it is all any of us can do, we don't do it enough. Absolutely. We don't do it often enough. You you also have um an interest in politics. I know you've been a part of some. Um, political campaigns and um, just on an individual level, you're very dialed into what's going on um, in your community and in the country and in the world. And um, does, do these, are there any connections there for you? Like, is this just a a thing that you happen to enjoy or is there a part of um, your sort of total process of, of sort of becoming who you are today that included that political consciousness or that, awakening to a responsibility that goes beyond just your own personal happiness. Mm-hmm. No, and I think one of the first steps, I'm going to kind of go back to my deconversion for a moment. One of my first steps really was um, reading Jim Wallace, starting to become oh, yeah. a more liberal Christian, um, really starting to expand my consciousness outside of just the confines of the church and the confines of, you know, my specific community. Coupled with that, I eventually went back to school and got my degree in sociology focused on, um, also minored in political science. And so one of my passions is racial inequality, um, social inequities. And I think it countered a lot of the individual gospel that I had heard growing up. Mm -hmm. Um, and that's not a reflection on whether I think, the Bible is just an individual gospel or has a more social component, but just what I grew up with was very much an individualistic um, focus. So I think that started to kind of expand my thinking outside of that. Mm. And then two, just realizing that um, I think when you get dialed into those kind of communities and you see the passionate sacrificial work that so many people are doing um, locally, state level globally um, that aren't connected to a faith practice. Um, Mm -hmm. But just seeing that kind of morality in action, I think was huge for me. Um, So there's definitely a link, I think, between kind of 
my political views in that. Um, yeah. Do you think there's like um, a kind of personal vulnerability? Like, cause I feel like both of us, you know, white men um, at some point we had to become aware of our blind spots mm-hmm. um, because the world sort of laid down for us more or less. Um, was there, how, how did you, become aware of your your privilege and why aren't you threatened by that awareness the way some people are i don't know why i'm not threatened by it but to work backwards um i spent over a decade working with juvenile delinquent uh, youth in a treatment facility and we had a um basically just had a racism uh, institute that came through we did like a two-day kind of intensive um practice where you know we sat across from you know people and just again were vulnerable and talked and they were able to share their stories um, and I think that's when I first started to really recognize that this insular bubble that I'd grown up in was just there was something so much more beyond that um, and it, I, I think I struggle with the question because as I've you know as I got my degree in sociology as I have worked through these things as I've had friends that were willing to just sit across from me and be raw and vulnerable about their experiences um, as a minority. I don't know how not. How would you be threatened by that? Like, how, yeah, how could you not just accept exactly? Um, just because it's the reality in front of me, and I'm able to see, I'm able to see those areas. Um, I remember reading, I think it was Peggy McIntosh's um, work with white privilege, and just kind of going through her list where she kind of delineated just different areas that. Um, Again, in a sense that privilege isn't necessarily something you're handed. There's just a lot of times things you do not have to think about. And as I read through those things and thought, I've never had to think about this. I've never dealt with that. Right. Um, and yeah, sure, we all have our anecdotes. And I think that's one of the things when you talk to people that are threatened by the concept of white privilege or privilege, it's, oh, well, I once had, you know, I faced prejudice once. And just trying to express to them that, yeah, but that to you is an anecdote. It's not part of the fabric of your existence. Mm. And I think seeing that, um, that for so many people that is, it's just stitched into the fabric of their existence. And it's just hard to know just again, how to be threatened by that. Cause I'm just not. Yeah. I mean, I think a through line here, if I may, is that sense of risk that you're willing to take to be vulnerable mm-hmm. and to be a little threatened mm-hmm. with your own insecurity, like being okay to sit with your own insecurity and be threatened by that and, and be like, Oh, I didn't die. Mm-hmm. I, I survived it. Cool. Maybe I could do that again. And and then to be threatened a little bit by someone else's uh, truth, mm-hmm. and and sit with it and be like, okay, that was super uncomfortable because he was talking about my people, people like that look like me. Mm-hmm. He might even feel a little animosity towards me mm-hmm. for some unknown, like yep. no personal reason. Mm-hmm. Like I've had people tell me, like I I don't trust you, mm-hmm. yeah. and I've not even know the person. Like and I'm like, why would you distrust me? Like we just met. <laughs> But it's clear why they would, yeah. you know, and and to be able to feel threatened by that, to feel a little hurt by that mm-hmm. and to be able to go like, OK, mm-hmm. I'm all right. Mm-hmm. I hit my thumb with that hammer and yeah. I, st- I still have a thumb. Yeah. It's going to be OK, yeah. you know. And I think, too, the recognition that there's such a mythos in American culture around the self-made person. Mm. You know? And I think that's very threatening to a lot of people, just that recognition that. Maybe there were some doors that got opened for you that you didn't open, you know, that you mm-hmm. thought you had opened. Um, but I think just kind of coming to terms with that, just that, um, yeah, I have had a lot of doors open for me that I've had nothing to do with, and that's okay. But I can now take that privilege and bring some awareness and vulnerability and willingness to just listen, to lean into the stories of others. And um, and at times, and I think that that's probably one of my biggest areas of struggle is is to just listen because I think there's that part of me that wants to immediately try to fix it and solve it. Um, but just realize that it's some, in some ways just hearing their stories and being able to amplify those stories is, you know, the first step. So. Yeah. I mean, I guess one of the things that I'm struck with as I've gotten to know you over the years is, is the, what I, I think is like a linkage between the personal, the interpersonal and the political. Mm-hmm. And, and it's to me in your life and in your story and what I read, you write and the way I see you live your life, um, 
those things are all connected mm-hmm. in a way that's you couldn't even like with a scalpel s- dissect them, you know. Um, and I think that's what's so um, so beautiful and so inspiring that I think others can can learn from and and grow from in in learning how to be integrated as a person, mm-hmm. like how to be connected to oneself, how to be connected to others, and then how to be connected to the big others, mm-hmm. like the, the wider others in our communities, whether it's your local city or, or the state or the, gov- the, the nation. I mean, I always find that people um, are, are greatly helped by getting involved in local issues. Mm-hmm. You know, it's one thing to sort of get on Facebook and post something that made you mad or, or that made you glad. Certainly. Um, but to actually form alliances with people in your neighborhood that are fighting against some kind of injustice or oppression or marginalization is really life changing. Absolutely. You know, whether it's even just going to your, like we have a bad weather shelter that, I mean, California doesn't have bad weather that often. <laughs> so we get to talk about bad yeah, weather. Shelters. It is only 60 today. <laughs> yeah. But it's raining. <laughs> yes. You know, and if you were homeless, we don't have as many sheltered, you know, because in California we think, oh, it's nice outside. Mm-hmm. So we don't build like malls you know? Absolutely. Yep. <laughs> where people can go inside. Um, and so, yeah, we have, you know, even if it's just going to your local shelter and offering to help out or uh, tutor some kids or, or whatever, very you know, entry level types of, of things that make you realize that the success of this young person that I'm tutoring is completely tied up with my own success. Absolutely. And, um, you know, I'm, I'm running for, um, city council here in Pasadena and I represent, or I would represent if I was elected this, uh, section of Pasadena that is, um, quite wealthy, mm-hmm. a lot of beautiful old historic homes, um, they almost look like plantations <laughs> in some cases. Um, you know, some natural environment. You know, it's pretty urban, but there's some beautiful natural parts of, of District 6. And um, and I think in many ways, uh, District 6 residents feel threatened by the encroaching sort of um, growth mm-hmm. of Pasadena and, and just middle class folks that live mm-hmm. in apartments. And um, and I just think that to, to reconnect us would be so important, you know, for us to realize that, you know, my apartment dwelling existence is tied up with these folks that have lived here for 60 years and have a home and they're not my enemies. Mm -hmm. Um, We may have competing values and interests that might put us at odds with one another from time to time, but we need each other. We're part of this together. Certainly. Yeah. And I think the thing I've been struck about is, and I kind of Going back again to going through this divorce process, I've spent a lot of time writing, a lot of time outrage, but I think coming to terms with the fact that outrage is intoxicating. It is, it's really, really intoxicating. It Mm. makes me feel like I'm involved. It makes me feel like I'm active. It makes me feel like I'm doing something when I'm expressing my outrage. Um, But again, that's where my focus needs to be placed again is at the local community is at reaching out um it may again may not be as intoxicating but i think it is um an area that especially for myself i think i've been able to get kind of caught up in national politics and global Mm -hmm. politics and um really kind of not neglecting local areas but um just needing to refocus on again how interconnected all that is well i'm really i'm really glad that we had this time to chat um it's sort of like a conversation that's been about everything and nothing yep. in a way. Like we haven't had a particular thing. Um, but I think your story, as you said, part of your goal right now is to tell your story. So I hope this has been one of those opportunities. Is there anything you want to say or get off your chest that you were hoping to say today? Not anything specific that I can think of. I know I touched on earlier. I think I just want to thank you for the amount of work you've done and what it's meant to me personally. Um, I was thinking back even at my group of friends um, that have meant so much to me over the last you know, weeks and months and even years and how many of them are connected to you and how, how much you've impacted them. Um, so I think that's kind of where I'm at right now. Just wanting to thank you for every, for your willingness to be vulnerable and to put yourself out there and just for the work that you've done. Um, cause it has, it's reverberating and, uh, it really means a lot. Thank you. Yeah. And 
I think that's like you said, that's, that's what we can do. We can be ourselves. We can do the work, Mm -hmm. you know, and that's the most important thing. And hopefully it reverberates out as you say. And I think it does. Mm -hmm. And I think, you know, what I'm really interested in now is, is for those of you that are listening, um, especially those of you of the, the male persuasion, um, those of you that grew up, um, identifying as, as male and have maybe resonate with some of the, um, stories that you've heard, um, or the feelings that you've, uh, heard us express about, um, the needs of our society, the needs of our, ourselves as individuals to face, um, some of the really unhealthy ways that we've related to ourselves and to others and, and to try to find a new way and to recognize that none of us has an answer, but that we're sort of feeling around for ways of being human that maybe we weren't shown, um, I'd love to hear from you, like what you think about that and, and what you think about what, what Tim's been doing, what Tim's been um, like with the group of guys that he was talking about. I think this is something that others could give us feedback about. And, and just, um, like you said, there's no like formula that's mm-hmm. going to like, you know, get this out <laughs> to the world, but just people being real and authentic in their community, whatever that looks like in their community. I'd love to hear from, from, I know I'm sure you would too. Absolutely people that are hearing this and feeling like, Oh man, we're doing that too. Like, let me tell you about that. We'd love to hear from you. Or if you're thinking like, if you have an idea to build on what you've heard, um, because I do think that there is a, a national crisis. I know we've, you know, I work with college students and there's a crisis of mental health, um, depression, suicide, um, loneliness, you know, and it's not only men, but it's, it's a lot of men mm-hmm. and um, I know I can't fix it but I certainly wouldn't mind being a part of something Absolutely. that would address it so well thanks for coming all the way down to Pasadena well thank you for having me thank you for tuning in to this edition of the X-Files and thank you to Tim Hellman not only for coming all the way to Pasadena from Oregon to record this conversation, but for the way he lives his life that is an example and an inspiration to me. Thank you so much for your friendship, Tim. To learn more about the X-Files and Life After God, please visit our website at lifeaftergod.org. If you appreciate this show and it adds value to your life, I hope you'll consider supporting this work by going to our Patreon page at patreon.com lifeaftergod and make a monthly pledge of any size to support the production of this show. Thank you for spending a portion of your day with us. Until next time, my name is Ryan Bell, and this has been The X-Files, Stories of Life After God. With Lucky Land Slots, you can get lucky just about anywhere. This is your captain speaking. Uh, we've got clear runway and the weather's fine, but we're just going to circle up here a while and uh, get lucky. No, no, nothing like that. It's just these cash prizes add up quick. So I suggest you sit back, keep your tray table upright, and start getting lucky. Play for free at LuckyLandslots.com. Are you feeling lucky? No purchase necessary. Void where prohibited by law. 18 plus terms and conditions apply. See website for details.